Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a psychotherapist based in Los Angeles, specializing in trauma and addiction. Welcome to our podcast, which is called It's Not About the Sex, also the name of my recent book. Here we focus on all topics related to compulsive sexual behavior, often referred to as sex addiction. In particular, we explore ways to build long-term sustainable recovery. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints brand new perspectives, and practical tools toward living a deeply connected life. Let's get started. I'm very pleased today to welcome my close colleague, Leslie Quinn. Leslie is here to discuss couples, and in particular, couples dealing with addiction and sometimes sex addiction. Leslie Quinn has been a marriage and family therapist on the west side of Los Angeles for the past 29 years. As a longtime couples and premarital therapist, Leslie helps clients recognize their codependency to understand their part in the family or marital drama. According to Leslie, establishing boundaries, respecting one another's needs, and asking for what they want in healthy ways helps people form more loving and satisfying relationships. Another specialty area of Leslie's is dealing with money challenges that couples always experience in one form or another. I believe that there are couples therapists and there are couples therapists who are passionate about working with couples. Leslie falls into the latter category. She's not only passionate, but very talented, creative, and intuitive in helping couples who are fortunate enough to work with her. I recommend Leslie without reservation. And today she has some valuable tools and strategies for couples of all kinds and those facing addictions. Many couples come to therapy because they say they have communication issues. That's such a common <laughs> thing, right? Communication it is, issues. It is. So yes. One question I have for you is, what, what's the real reason most couples tend to seek therapy? Well, it's interesting you say that. Um, I have a line on my intake form that says, what brought you to therapy? And oftentimes, that's exactly the word that's written there, communication. And what I often start with with couples is that most people, not everyone, but most people have an easier time expressing themselves and have a much more difficult time listening. And that I I really say to couples, a lot of the communication issues I see are really about listening and trying to listen without all the filtering that gets done from one's past and what they believe is being said, but really focusing on what's being said by your partner and trying to understand him or her. So can you say a little bit more? I mean, how, how does someone actually get to be a better listener in session with you? What what are some actual direction <laughs> or pointers that you give them? Um, not interrupting is probably one of the biggest ones. And um, I use an old technique that's been around forever, which is, you know, called active listening, which is basically I help people slow down and repeat what they just heard. And it's uh, amazing, but uh, not all that uncommon to hear someone say something completely opposite or uh, 
um, not quite what their partner said. And so then I asked the partner, could you just repeat what you said and, and let's see about, you know, if you can really listen one more time. Um, but the slowing down seems to be the place I start with people. Often couples come that are really agitated or they've worked trying to, they've been trying to work through the same problem for months or years and, um, you know, having a fresh pair of eyes on it and, and a methodology for really, uh, doing something different helps. So slowing down is really the key. And mm-hmm. what I also wonder is many couples, as you said, come in agitated. Oftentimes they're in crisis they mm-hmm. are having difficulty really even sitting in their chair because they're just so they're buzzing with with <laughs> worry and it's just tough for them right so i right, wonder right. if there's anything you can say about what it takes to help somebody slow down even when they're in crisis um that's where i come in basically to interrupt um not always gently, but to interrupt, to, I often say to couples when they, if they start out and they're interrupting and talking over one another, I give them a minute to do that. And then I say to them, is this what you want to do today? Because you don't need to be here to do this. I'm sure you've done this at home and, and this is what you do at home. If you're open to trying something different, I have some other ideas. And I think sometimes just the shock of someone stopping them and saying, it's not going to happen here. We're not going to do the same thing. Um, I'm not going to take your money basically so that you can do exactly what you've done at home for years. Sure. So, what I think I'm hearing is on the one hand, they are taught how not to interrupt one another, but sometimes Uh it's actually your job to interrupt their patterns. Absolutely. It's often my job to interrupt their patterns. Great. And to, and to try to do it, um, to try to do it with compassion, to try to do it with understanding, to, to really, again, look someone in the eye and say, I'm not sure that what you're doing is going to be the most effective thing. Has it been effective in the past? Let me help. Let me help you just try something different. Are you willing to try something different? And getting people on board and getting them, you know, again, lots of couples particularly don't make phone call to a therapist early in problems. They make, you know, things are often on the brink or close to divorce or, you know, they've tried other therapists or they've tried weekend workshops or read books or whatever they've tried and it hasn't worked. Mm -hmm. So if I'm hearing you correctly, compassion and understanding is actually a chance for them to witness in vivo and in the therapy room mm-hmm. with you, what that looks like, and hopefully you, you mm-hmm. become a model for them in that way. Exactly. Yep. That's very true. Fantastic. So I want to just throw in, so, so our audience understands a little bit more about how this initial 
stage of couples therapy uh, takes shape. I want to ask mm-hmm. you about a, an example, just a basic example. So a husband calls you about his wife who he believes has some kind of alcohol problem. And okay. he's been observing her for the last year or two. It feels like the alcohol use is getting more and more out of control. And he's worried. They have two kids. He wants to help her. He's really interested in working on the relationship. Uh, but mm-hmm. but he's just invited her to come in for a couple's therapy session. And, and grudgingly, she says yes. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> that grudgingly is often the case. So how, right. how would you approach a situation like that? Well, often, particularly with substance abuse or addictive issues, um, the abuser is in denial or wants to minimize things. Um, you know, it's not a problem. I only do it on weekends. Oh, he's blowing it out of proportion. And um, I've worked a lot with addictions. And um, again, I guess my approach to that person is to help her not feel as if the bright lights are shining in her eyes and she's not on the hot seat, Mm -hmm. but to ask her some questions, to try to engage with her, um, really probably to keep him quiet. Because, again, if he's coming in with, you know, please fix this person, um, it, it often goes awry. But, but to really ask her if she's ever thought it was a problem and, and why, why does she think he thinks it's a problem? Has anyone else in her family ever mentioned it to her? And, and try to slowly, without labeling her, you know, ask her to to look at where it might be interfering with intimacy, with parenting, with her job, with any other kind of basic functioning she needs to do. And also maybe ask her about stresses in her life that that may be contributing to, you know, more drinking than she's done in the past. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like you're not wanting to make it about right or wrong, good or bad. You're not Mm -hmm. wanting to label her as the problem partner. Instead, you're, you're really wanting to help them start to look at all of the possibilities that have contributed to the issues that they face as a couple today. Right. And also to look at the system that, you know, in which this is existing and the context in which it's existing so that, she doesn't feel again like she's the identified patient and he's you know getting off scot-free um but that he has issues about communication or whatever he may not have an abuse problem substance abuse problem himself but there's always some kind of systemic issue happening i believe right so the system needs to be addressed in addition to the individuals mm-hmm. right sure right. You know, we've talked about this before, but what what happens when a person comes to therapy, couples therapy in particular, and and the reason they're there is to have the therapist help change the other person. So, for instance, in this example, (laughs) the the husband may think that she's the problem, right? Mm -hmm. 
but mm-hmm. also as we know as clinicians that husband may not be able to see their part in the dance so mm-hmm. how do right. you, how do you approach that um again i think through education through again if we're talking about alcohol or drug abuse really through programs like al-anon which help the other really see what their part in the dance is and how they are either contributing or enabling or giving mixed messages sometimes to the person who's abusing the substance. Mm -hmm. So I also was very taken with something we've talked about, which is the idea of triggers and the word triggers generally refers to something from someone's past that is part of what they've gone through, possibly a trauma or possibly something in the past that hasn't been fully resolved and then Mm -hmm. comes up in the here and now and happens in in the present tense and, and is confusing because in, in the current relationship, it may look like, what's happening at that moment. But then when we excavate it a little bit further, there's actually a lot of roots to it. So Mm -hmm. I believe you agree with this, but tell me what you think. So partners often trigger one another in a way that no other person in our life triggers us. Right. And, and what I mean by that is sometimes they trigger things that go back to times that were pre-verbal for us even. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so there's what we might call primitive hurt or primitive rage or all kinds of things that get triggered. And I'm wondering when you see that in your office between a couple, how do you work with those kinds of triggers? Well, great question. Um, I, I see it when you say uh, partners often trigger. I, I tell people your partner is going to trigger you more than anyone else in the whole world. And, and just to really normalize that as, because often couples think, oh, because he or she triggers me, I'm with the wrong person and this keeps coming up and why does this keep coming up? And only if I changed, you know, if I changed partners, I would never be triggered again. And I try to, you know, tell that um, illusion that they have. But, um, for me, the first the first order of business is really helping people understand triggering as an unconscious process and as something that they there is, are physiological changes going on where they cannot think in that moment and where everything feels absolutely real and that they are convinced one hundred percent that that their interpretation of those events is the correct one. Um, so once I can get someone on board to, to really believe that maybe what they're seeing, maybe what they're feeling is inaccurate, I feel like I have a foothold. And then, you know, I talk to them about, you know, where, how old do you feel? And when else have you felt this? What does it remind you of? And, and what, what does it make you believe? Does it make you believe you're not respected or you're not heard or you don't matter? Or Because people are always, when they're triggered, they're linking something that was said or done to 
this must mean X. And if this means X, I'm going to feel Y. Um, and also to, to, again, help people, which, again, is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. Help people really believe that their being triggered is their, their responsibility. It's not about, I'm going to get he or she to stop triggering me. It's, I'm going to learn how to breathe through this, how to take some space, how to talk to myself and say, my perception is probably wrong if, if I'm getting this you know, emotionally charged from one little comment or something that was done. A couple of things that felt really important about what you just said. So uh -huh. triggers really distort our perceptions uh -huh. because there's so much that's getting stirred up under the surface and, right. and it's something that at the time we could say it was too much to process that, that's still activated in this way. And then mm -hmm. I, I think I heard you say when you were talking about X and Y that there's this well-worn path that the client goes down and right. you're trying to educate them and let them be the observer of that pattern so that they have more choice. Is that accurate? That's accurate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean it feels like what you are talking about is one of the core principles of good therapy, in my opinion, that whether uh -huh. it's working with couples or an individual or a family or a group, that getting into that blueprint and really understanding what those trigger areas are, those trigger points are, is half of the work right there. Because then in the here and now, there's much more option to do a, a new A, B, or C rather than the old X and Y. Does that make right. sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm going to switch gears just a little bit so we can talk a little bit about how infidelity and, and sex addiction can really interrupt the, uh, the possibilities for relationships that are, are working or have the opportunity to work well. So my, my, mm -hmm. question, my question is this. When you're working with someone who comes in talking about infidelities and they're having mm -hmm. sexual intimacy did problems. You, wait, did you pluralize that? Was that infidelities? I did. <laughs> oh, I, I thought so. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, for instance, let's, somebody, let's imagine somebody's having an affair or just had an affair, but they're also mm -hmm. abusing porn, right? They're consuming a lot of porn. I consider both of those mm -hmm. things infidelities of different types. Okay. So sure. if I'm broadening the definition kind of through the lens of Esther Perel, for instance, um, okay. I'm wondering how you look at intimacy problems at that point, or more specifically, sexual intimacy problems. Um, well, how I look at them insofar as this person comes in, they're still actively in an affair or they've stopped having an affair or... I mean, I think the first thing for me is to find out what's really, what's happening right now. You know, are both partners invested in repair? Are both partners, you know, is the person who's had the affairs still thinking about it? So what, you know, are they telling the truth? You know, where, where are they? 
and let's say, okay, both partners, you know, the person who, who's had been having the affair has said it's absolutely over and, you know, you can, you can count on that. And there's a lot of, I just read something yesterday actually about, um, therapists needing to tolerate the obsession that the person who has been cheated on has about all of the details, where and when and how much and how long and all of that. And, um, and also I talked to the person who's, who's had the affair about the strength they are going to need and the to-, to tolerate and to accept that this is a this has been a trauma for that person, and how are they going to be present, not want to rush through the process, not want to let's get to the other side, it's over now, let's just move on. But to really, as you know, as you mentioned, Esther Perel's work, which is you know absolutely fantastic, as you and I both believe. You know, she says it. You need to really talk about what it did to you and what it meant to me. And that's not usually something in the early stages that you can talk to, because often the person who's uh, been cheated on feels nothing they did was wrong, and they had no part in it, and it had nothing to do with the relationship, and. Um, and so they're not opening to hear or open to hearing anything about themselves and any part they may have played in that dance. John, so I'm, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. Well, I, I was really interested in what you said about what it did to you and what it meant to me. Mm-hmm. Can you mm-hmm. expand on that and talk a little bit more about what happens at that point or what you're hoping to um, promote in terms of the repair at, with, with the couple at that point? Sure. I think, I think the person again, early on, because I, I, I don't think getting over the affair an affair is a quick process early on. I think the focus really needs to be the ability for the partner to hear what it did to the trust to feelings about attractiveness, to feelings about wanting to be sexual to the person that they cheated on. And that's, that can be a process that takes months, even, you know, more than a year. But to really repair, I believe, that person needs to, once they're through that period, they need to be able to hear what it meant to the other person. Why? If, if in fact, the affair was not about, which I sort of separate, a sexual addiction issue, but it was about feeling lonely in the relationship, feeling misunderstood, not having a sexual relationship. The, if in a heterosexual couple, the woman being too focused on the children and not having any focus on the relationship, all of those standard classic things that unfortunately, um, contribute. Um, but in order to be open to that, to really, I mean, what Esther Perel really talks about a lot is when she interviews the person who's had the affair, 
often he or she says to Esther, I felt alive for the first time in a really long time. Mm-hmm. And so part of our job as couples therapists is how, how do you bring that back into the relationship? Because hopefully if it was a good relationship, there was an aliveness that somehow has, has really uh, gone away. So it's really a timing thing for the partner mm-hmm. to be able to hear that, right? Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And we don't know whether absolutely. that's months or years or it really depends, but, but this is all about trust building again. Well, and it's also about, I, I have found it's also about the psychological strength of that partner. Mm-hmm. Some partners are really able to their part to really work through their hurt once they felt heard and understood by the other and really hear about how their partner felt lonely or felt misunderstood or felt ignored and and want to make those changes mm-hmm. so there's know, a heart to create sorry mm-hmm. now i'm interrupting no, no. you <laughs> that's okay there's a heart one no, there's a heart opening process. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Sure. Absolutely. So you alluded a moment ago to the difference between an infidelity versus a sex addiction. So if there truly is a sex addiction, right, there's there's all the if criteria. There truly is. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's say there is. Then Let's say how there does, is. How does that differ from uh, a, a couple that does not have an addictive compulsive component or, or even an infidelity that doesn't fit into that larger category. Uh, I really, I guess I believe the addicted partner really needs additional supportive, you know, programmed help to really look at often much deeper issues than, oh, I was lonely, or I was out of town and there was an opportunity, or, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot more going on, including usually you know, abuse and, and other kinds of trauma that contribute to someone who has a sexual addiction issue. Mm-hmm. Would you say the same? Absolutely. I, I believe what you're saying really is that both partners can benefit from a more comprehensive approach to their own healing in order mm-hmm. to make room for the couple to come back together. Right. At the right. same time, it it sounds like every couple is a little bit different, but when we're talking about someone who's sexually compulsive and has had that blind spot around why am I sexually compulsive that that really is part of the compassion piece but but also part of the ability to have empathy for their partner mm-hmm. yeah right so one last question if, if there was okay. if there was one bit of advice that you can offer couples <laughs> who are less than satisfied with their current relationship what can you share with our audience about that? 
I guess, you know, I, when you say that, I think about all of the distractions that are in our lives now and something that sounds maybe simplistic, but make time for one another. Really carve out time for one another without children, without uh, screens, without really make time. And even if that's a short, I'm always surprised, um, pleasantly surprised how just taking short bursts of time during the week, it doesn't have to be an all-day affair. It doesn't have to be, you know, half a day. But making time to really connect and listen to one another and respect one another goes a long way. You know, I used to say that People only come into my office with one complaint, and that is neither partner feels appreciated enough. And in many ways, that still holds true, that that the more partners appreciate each other and really value what, you know, they have in a relationship, the, the better things flow. You know, another colleague of, of ours once told me that it's like putting a little bit of coins into the piggy bank and uh-huh. and that the investment is really in making that, that space for deeper contact with one another. And if the piggy bank mm-hmm. is empty, oftentimes that's where the relationship is vulnerable. If the piggy bank is full, chances are that both people will feel more appreciated, more understood, more loved, mm-hmm. and closer as a result. Absolutely, right. And and it's very easy to ignore that you're not putting those coins in the piggy bank to get distracted, to get involved in something else, to not to not notice. So in some ways it's it's back to basics. It's back to mm-hmm. really mm-hmm being mindful of of the love language of the other person and being able to mm-hmm. tune into that. And even if it's not your first language, to do your best to, to be there and to show that your partner is lovable and desirable and is worthy of, of your attention. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, I so appreciate you joining us today, Leslie. And oh, my pleasure, Andrew. And I'm sure we'll have other opportunities to continue this conversation. And uh-huh. we will talk soon. Thank you so much for okay. being here. You're welcome. My pleasure, Andrew. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Today was our very first podcast. Thank you so much for listening. It was wonderful talking with my colleague, Leslie Quinn, today. And if you noticed in today's podcast, we both referred to someone we truly revere as a master couples therapist and expert on infidelities, and her name is Esther Perel. For more information on Esther Perel, you might want to check out her latest book, The State of Affairs. Please listen to our future podcasts with topics such as pro-dependence, somatic experiencing, 
and mindful self-compassion. Again, thank you for being with us today. And we'll see you the next time.